2: Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Previously on Murder in Miami. So it's
4: 1982, and I decided i to go back to Washington D.C. Along the way, it had occurred to me that the the people I considered the real criminals were the people who were running things in Washington and other places like that.
3: The Christic Institute was a nonprofit public interest law firm. They sought to wield the law as a weapon of progressive change against a number of daunting targets.
4: What I told Danny was that Bob Adams had been part of a military intelligence unit that provided logistical support for assassinations conducted by the United States. And in any case, Danny offered me a monthly stipend of $2,500 a month. And I put everything in the car again and went back to Miami.
3: Now you're basically working as a private investigator, investigative journalist, investigating Intercept, a private (laughs) investigation.
4: Yeah, I suppose so. The funny part is that when I got back, I went out to the office in Perrine, and it was closed. So finally, I, I tracked down Bob, and Bob tells me, turns out that Lamar has been under federal investigation for some time now something called Operation Lone Star, and it's a very big deal. The next thing I know, I get this call from Bob saying that Lamar wants to meet me at the mutiny. When out of the blue, Lamar says, well, I just want you to know that I appreciate what you're doing here, but I sure as hell wish you and your boys back in Washington would get a move on it. I I, I, I certainly don't know what to make of it. And he says, oh, come on now, you're with the CIA, right?
3: Wait, he thought you? You? We're with the CIA? (laughs) Why?
4: (laughs) I had no idea at the time.
3: So if Bob Adams led Phil to believe Intercept was connected with drug smuggling through Lamar Chester, who was Chester's connection? The man you're about to meet would definitely know, because he claims he facilitated one of Chester's notable expansions in the drug trade.
5: Did you quit loving me? Happy Miles here. Give me a call. That's
3: Mr. Happy Miles, a man who's led a pretty fantastical life, one peppered with some very unique professions. He's also very active on Facebook.
5: Happy here. Give me a call on Facebook.
3: His dormant Twitter self-describes Happy as a lifelong adventurer, pilot, sailor, boat builder, plane builder, and a purveyor of the finer things in life.
5: Judge smuggling was more than a job. It was an adventure.
3: Mr. Miles was also a close business associate and friend of Intercept's biggest client, Lamar Chester, the man indicted as a marijuana smuggler, although Happy himself never bothered much with marijuana.
5: I don't like being around pot because I hate the smell of it.
3: Cocaine was Happy's preferred cargo.
5: It isn't as bulky and it's not as messy. Coke is all nice and clean and wrapped up. You just put it in duffel bags.
3: What do you miss about those times? The money. (laughs) I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco and this is Murder in Miami.
4: When I started working at Intercept, I was just like Mr. Magoo stumbling around there. I didn't know anything. I, and I certainly had no idea that at the time they were already under federal investigation. Wow. All I really knew about Lamar Chester was what Bob Adams had told me, and, and I wouldn't meet Happy Miles till years later when I figured I'd better start looking into this thing.
3: What was your initial take on Happy Miles?
4: <laughs> he was a very eccentric, interesting guy. He had a lot of great stories. He had an island in the Bahamas for a while. One story that sticks with me is that when he was making a lot of money in the the drug business, like all of those guys, he had a lot of disposable income. He gave a $15,000 tip to a waitress in a a lunch counter down in the Keys. It's quite a life he's lived.
3: Yeah, he's such a character. He strikes me as this... Purely, like, Dionysian
4: person. (laughs) There's a a reason why he called himself Happy Miles.
3: And over the course of many months, I've grown used to hearing Happy Miles share the stories woven into that life, which spans 83 years.
5: When I tell people about my life, They don't believe me. Nobody could have done all the things I've done. He's not kidding. You know, I produced a record. You did? What is it called? The Songwriter with Michael Donovan, the ex-wide receiver for the Denver Broncos. He's dead now, but I wrote, you heard the song Coyote Ugly?
3: There's a movie called Coyote Ugly.
5: Yeah, I should sue the bastards because it's a copyrighted name. What's
3: the song Coyote Ugly about? So you order up a shot and you order up a beer in hopes
2: it'll bring her a bit nearer to your ideal, the ideal woman.
0: I went to bed with an eight
5: and I woke up with
2: three. What did this woman do
5: to deserve me? And then it goes on to say just how ugly was she?
4: I'm telling you, she could drop a maggot off a meat wagon. Well, this woman is what you call coyote ugly. Coyote ugly is when you roll over in the morning and you take a look at her and you
5: chew your arm off to keep from waking her up. No, that's coyote ugly. You wrote that? Yeah, Mike and I did. I own the copyright.
3: While not exactly a feminist anthem, the song does appear on the album, Happy Mailed Me, complete with a 1981 copyright. And the singer? Michael Donovan was indeed on the roster of the Broncos in 1976 and 77, before becoming mayor of Glendale, Colorado and running for governor in 2014. The thing about Happy? His stories check out. Happy's kind of like the Dos Equis guy of decadence.
5: Well, the world knows me as Happy H-Miles. What does the H stand for? Horny.
3: Yep. And as my voicemail can attest, most every Happy Miles story leads to another.
5: Hey, I thought of a real
3: funny story. Give me a call. If you'd wager, a former cocaine smuggler with 83 years under their belt would have some pretty interesting stories to share. With Happy, you'd hit the jackpot.
5: I didn't tell you the red suitcase story, did I? No. Okay. When I flew for another guy, he had this Arab that would take Samsonite suitcases, the lining out, and meticulously would bag the cocaine in very small bags, like a small condom kind of, okay? And he would line the vertical edges of the suitcase with it, glue in ice cream sticks to hold everything in place, and then put the lining back in. You couldn't tell just by glancing that anything had been done to the suitcase, unless you picked it up, and it would be 20 pounds heavier, right, than it should be.
3: Happy's job was to fly into Venezuela and pick up the suitcases containing the hidden cocaine. But when the courier arrived at his hotel, Happy had immediate issues.
5: The suitcases were empty. And I said, hold it, hold it. I'm not carrying these suitcases out past immigration and customs to the airplane. I'm not going to do it. These empty suitcases, this is ridiculous. And what man owns red suitcases? They were both red? Yeah, brand new Samsonite red suitcases with 20 keys of Coke in each one. Made them weigh 20 pounds more. So I went down to the haberdashery in the hotel, very swank haberdashery, and I bought arrows shirts enough to fill up these big suitcases, probably four or five grand worth because they were like $35 a piece. They weren't cheap.
3: How big were these suitcases?
5: They were big suitcases. I filled these up with shirts. So now they had all these unwrapped shirts in it, right? So I file a flight plan out for the morning at sunup, at dawn, because nobody will be out there, right? And I paid customs off ahead of time. So I felt rather secure. But I had a hanging bag, I had a duffel bag, I had my flight bag, and two fucking red suitcases. Well, that's quite a load. For one guy to carry. Yeah. So the next morning, I carry the shit downstairs, grab a cab to the airport, and I'm walking out to the airplane. It's about a 400-foot trek. I get about halfway there to the airplane.
3: And that's exactly when, Mr. Miles says, a young Army guard shows up to offer a huffing and puffing happy assistance with his heavy load.
5: Now, the last thing I want him doing is carrying one of these suitcases, right? So he's just ktm in the suitcase. What do you got in the suitcases? So I laid them down and opened them right away. And he looks really puzzled. I've got all these brand new shirts. And he says to me in Spanish, he says, ¿Qué eres usted, un contrabandista de camisas? What are you, a smuggler of shirts? (laughs) I said, yeah, he caught me. But look, just Take whatever shirts you want, and you can have them. Well, this kid never saw a thirty-dollar shirt in his life, so he took two shirts and told me in Spanish, "I have to go quick before the sergeant sees me." And he takes off with a couple shirts, and I take off for the airplane, load it, jump in, light it up, and go. But. He had caught a smuggler of shirts.
3: (laughs) Who had a lot of cocaine stuffed underneath the shirts.
5: Yeah. Anyway, so that was the story.
6: Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm
0: Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff.
5: We're actually reopening an old case and your name
0: came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were gonna kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years I didn't say anything. Listen to cold-blooded the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: And middle initial aside, there's also a story behind the Happy Miles name.
5: Well, people started calling me happy while I was dating Anne margaret That makes sense. You
3: should be a happy man if you're dating Anne margaret Yes, Anne margaret That Anne margaret Viva Las Vegas as in Elvis Anne margaret But as Happy tells it, this was a few years before she found fame.
5: In the 60s, I had just gotten out of the Marine Corps, and then I met Anne Margaret. She went to work at the Villa Marina. I took her to breakfast every morning after she got off work at midnight or two, because they didn't have any money to eat. The they
3: is the band she was singing
5: with at the time. They didn't even have money to put gas in their car to get to the gig. I took her to Catalina her and two of the guys from the Subtle Tone, her band. We had a rough trip coming back. We had to drift all night because it was so rough, you couldn't go either way.
3: Happy says he offered to keep Ms. Margaret warm under a tarp during the night.
5: We got in about 9 o'clock in the morning, and uh, the guy said, boy, it looks like you've had a lot of happy miles. And the name just stuck.
3: Does your driver's license say Happy Miles?
5: My driver's license says it. I have two names on my passport, and my pilot's license is in the name of Happy Miles. When I crashed on the mountaintop in Bolivia... They told me that they were going to suspend my license because I wasn't Happy Miles. I was John Anthony Mahalo.
3: In order to avoid a formal hearing, Happy says he was given the option of providing the Bolivian officials with character references confirming he was an upstanding citizen known as Happy Miles. He figures he collected about 300 signatures.
5: Yeah, I had everybody sign it. I had the mayor of Miami Beach. I had the mayor of Miami, Maurice Ferre. I had the customs officers where I cleared customs with the airplane all the time. I had the fire department and Coral Gables police chief. And I had tons of members from the Adventures Club sign it.
3: Nestled in Coconut Grove in the mid to late 1970s, the Adventurers Yacht and Sailing Club offered participants a clever combination of an exclusive membership with outdoor adventures, complete with instruction and rentals for sailing and eventually flying. At the time, the Adventurers Club was a fixture on the Miami social scene, and so was its flashy founder, Mr. Happy Miles.
5: Coconut Grove was a great place to live and, you know, having the Adventures Club, I was my fair-haired boy. I was on a first-name basis with the mayor and the city attorney and manager.
3: Happy shared a ton of pictures with me from all different stages of his life. Many are set in tropical or social situations where he's smiling next to an assortment of beautiful women. In the 1970s, Happy stood about six feet tall with a wavy head of dark hair and a devious smile that competed with the bright blue of his eyes for attention, which competed with the sparkle of his taste in gold chains, expensive watches, and at one point, a diamond-studded bracelet that spelled out his name.
5: It was a nugget bracelet. I'll send you a picture of me wearing it and also wearing a gold mm-hmm. Rolex with a nugget band that I paid 40000 for.
3: Wouldn't that kind of be a dead giveaway as to what you did for a living? Well, catch me if you can. He sent the picture. You can see why in his younger days, Happy was often mistaken for Teddy Kennedy. He's seated at a desk— arms resting in front of him, golden bling popping out from both bedazzled wrists, and a medallion and chain resting atop his chest hair. He's wearing a confident grin and a sleek white collared shirt, generously unbuttoned at the neck.
5: I was a pretty good dresser. I mean, I had a lot of Western suits. I still am wearing the boots from that era. And those boots seem
3: made for walking, considering the number of times Happy's been married.
5: Some people that are in better know than I am say it's been a baker's dozen, but I'm not sure. 13, wow. Well, in my case, there were tons and tons of women around as the Commodore, you know.
3: Happy was known as the Commodore of the Adventurers Club, which at its height boasted more than 2,500 members, including the then mayor of Miami and...
4: International drug smuggler...
3: Lamar Chester. That's where their paths first crossed.
5: Lamar Chester joined my yacht club to sail. And I did such a good job of running boats, he thought I should be in the airplane business... And he had a bunch of airplanes he couldn't pay for. So I bought them. And that's how I met Lamar. He was flying for Eastern Airlines, but he had overextended himself.
3: And you guys ended up becoming pretty good friends, right?
5: Yeah. I was the only outsider at his wedding because it was only family relatives. I was the only non-family member there. It was an Indian theme.
3: And by Indian, Mr. Miles means Native American.
5: I got a picture of it, Artist and Lamar. Okay, let me get up so I can describe it. Artis was a... She was tall, 5'10 or something like that. She was dainty in other words. Lamar is kind of in a Eisenhower type jacket, but a western suit-like, and he stands about a three-quarters of a head, two-thirds of a head taller than Artis. Why was there a theme to the wedding? Just for fun? No, it was both of their second marriages, and they were like that.
3: The photo is faded to a soft pastel glow. Lamar and Artis are looking at the camera, likely held by Happy, Chester's right arm resting on his bride's lower back. Both are wearing wide grins, and Artis is indeed wearing what appears to be Native American garb and a band across her forehead. Chester's smile is topped by a thin mustache that gives off an Errol Flynn sort of vibe. He's wearing his dark hair meticulously slicked back and a yellow rose on his left lapel. They look like a very happy couple.
5: Well, I think they were very much in love with each other. I know she was going with some mafioso when Lamar met her. Lamar used to buy roses and fly over their yacht and dump the roses out, thumb his nose at the mafia. (laughs) He wasn't afraid. Lamar wasn't afraid of anything. He stood about two or three inches taller than I, long, lanky. Kind of a farm boy type, and he wasn't afraid of anybody or anything.
3: That fearlessness would be on full display during a double date, Happy remembers as memorable on multiple levels.
5: One time we went for paella in Cuban town in my Cadillac, and Lamar and Artis were in the back seat. And I'd pull up to a stop sign, and a guy would pull up alongside of us and then want to drag race us to the next light. And I didn't know Lamar was giving him the finger the whole time. And when we came to stop, he had a 357 pointed at me. And I was in the right lane, so I made a right turn and tried to lose him. And here we were at 100 miles an hour going through Cuban town, all the residential roads. And I was hoping for a cop to see us. We finally blocked him and we got back to his apartment on Brickell Avenue on the water there. And I went up to his apartment and he opened a footlocker and got a couple machine guns out of it, Uzis. And said, let's go find the bastard. I said, Lamar, you're crazy. We're not going looking for any trouble. And he was flying guns then to Nicaragua.
3: You heard that right. Machine guns that were being flown from Miami to Nicaragua in the late 1970s.
5: They were in military foot lockers in the living room, stacked one on top of the other standard military footlockers They issue you in the Marine Corps. The footlocker is about two feet high and two feet deep and four feet long or something, something like that. And they were just filled with guns? Yeah, there were probably at least 20, 30 guns in each one. And what, what kind of guns? M16s, I guess, and... and uh, M1s and stuff like that. So
3: military-grade military
5: stuff? Yeah, all military-grade.
3: And did he tell you
5: who he was running
3: the guns for?
5: The CIA, I, I would imagine the CIA was running that show.
3: Those guns and Chester's claim of running them for the government will play a major role as this story unfolds and that remains one of the pieces Bill Stanford is still trying to place and one that will eventually play out in a court of law.
4: Yeah, that was one of the stories that struck me as very important because it was evidence that Chester was running guns. I mean, there were crates of guns and as Happy says... No one has that many guns for personal use. I mean, they were in these crates for shipping, and apparently he told Happy that he was flying them to Nicaragua.
3: Remember that story, because it'll come up again. But in terms of our timeline, Happy's hold on Miami's social scene was coming to an end by the time Phil relocated there, which is why their paths wouldn't cross until years later.
4: When I finally tracked him down, it turned out he was living about 90 miles from me in Albany, Oregon, in an uh, abandoned aircraft hangar, building a plane. <laughs> Very happy-esque. He has uh, remarkable abilities. I mean, he's, he's completely unschooled, but there's a little bit of certainly mechanical genius about him. He's, he was able to put together huge deals. He was able to master several crafts. I think he started out as a sailmaker, and then That got him into the boat rental business. And then he got into the aircraft business and he was modifying planes and, God knows, flying them too without a commercial pilot's license. Yeah,
3: No, he's dyslexic, so he can't get his (laughs) instrumental flight
5: certificate. He gets mixed up. That's why he said that. It was scary. I didn't like it, you know? I mean, you're, you're coming back at nighttime sometimes, and it was just scary as shit. And being dyslexic, I'd almost killed myself a couple times. airplane lost it in the clouds, and it went out of control, and just the good Lord saved
4: my ass, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. That's, that's happy.
3: Did I ever tell you that he ended up going into the movie business as well, both as a producer and in Caddyshack, there is that scene where, Ted Knight is on the boat and Rodney Dangerfield is trying to rev up his boat and come see him. And all of this chaos ensues and somebody throws a fishing rod and he gets caught to the boat and he goes flying through the air. And at that moment, a plane comes and swoops down, almost brushing Ted Knight (laughs) on the top of the head. And guess who's flying that plane?
4: That's happy. Yeah, sure. That's happy Miles.
3: And flirting with risky flying seems to be a running theme with the Coconut Grove guys. Here's Happy.
5: In fact, Lamar one time let me land a 727 at National Airport. No way. Not with people on the flight.
3: Oh, yeah. How did that come about, that that Lamar let you fly a passenger plane?
5: I was on a trip with Lamar. Back in those days, they could take somebody up into the cockpit, even take him on the airplane without paying for him. And when the chief pilot for Eastern said, what are you doing? He said, well, I didn't think he could fly. Do you think I'd let him fly my airplanes? And I had 11,000 hours probably at that point in my life. And we took off from Miami and the co-pilot got out of the seat and I got in and then flew the airplane. I flew the approach, and then when we got, I don't know, down 500 feet or something, he said, "My airplane," and he landed it.
3: Oh, so he landed it.
5: Yeah, but I could have landed it. Back to
3: Phil. Did he also tell you a story about an airdrop in the Everglades, where Lamar talked his way out of an arrest?
4: Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great story. One morning, they're doing another drop, and Happy's up doing the lookout, and here come two planes headed from Jamaica or wherever they were coming from. They flew together because they'd create one radar signature, and the idea was that the plane carrying the dope would drop down, and the other one would take off, and so the people watching radar would think that just one plane had passed over the Everglades and would be landing at the whatever airport sometime later. So here comes the uh, plane landing on the uh, the road, and, and Lamar is driving a truck.
3: But there's a police presence nearby, and so the gang had to get a message to Chester in code. I'll let Happy pick it up from here.
5: They didn't use aircraft radios to talk to back and forth. They used marine boat radios, and they would talk about fishing, you know? I hope you got your license with you today because the game warden is checking licenses. He looks to be about five minutes away or something like that. Anyway, so Lamar landed and was offloading the load. He had a truck.
3: And not just any truck. This one was customized.
5: It was painted green. And it had a Florida State seal on the door that said Florida Hyacinth Control. Nothing suspicious about that, except there's no Florida Hyacinth Control.
3: They had the logo and everything just made up?
5: Yeah, yeah. And they had this truck jacked up way off the ground so you couldn't see in the bed of it. So they landed, unloaded the load, threw a tarp over it and Lamar said you fly the airplane to his son and I'll drive the truck because a sheriff was coming. Mm-hmm. So five minutes later they meet going the opposite direction and Lamar waves them down.
3: That's when Chester informs the sheriff about suspicious activity he'd passed a while back and graciously offers to phone it into the state.
5: And the sheriff said, would you be so kind? He said, yeah, I'll do that for you. (laughs) Back
3: to Phil.
4: And Lamar drives off. And of course, Happy learns about it later when they all stop for drinks, probably outside Opelika Airport, and they all have a good laugh about that one.
3: So there was no Hyacinth Patrol?
4: (laughs) No. I mean, these guys have a lot of time to sit around scheming. And Lamar was, and Happy. they were both schemers.
3: That's kind of brilliant because they weren't impersonating an actual (laughs) arm of law
4: enforcement. They created their own. Yeah, yeah. No, it it was uh, a good dope smuggler story.
3: Lamar Chester would also introduce Happy Miles to a legendary marijuana smuggler, Ron Elliott.
5: Well, Ron and Lamar both flew for Eastern Airlines. We're both captains. And they both joined my club. Ron is one of these guys that overthinks everything and makes it too complicated. He was an astronaut, you know. Wow. But when they shut down the Skylab program, we went to work flying for Eastern. and. He and his wife had had a baby, had some weird disease where the baby never got out of diapers. He wasn't supposed to live but a year or two, and he lived to be seven. And she was a nurse, and both of them were just frazzled by the time the kid died. And Ron Elliott said, fuck, I was so teed up, I'd have robbed a bank. But he decided he'd find a buy in Jamaica, and he did.
3: So that pretty much explains how Lamar Chester, Happy Miles, and Ron Elliott knew each other and why they were eventually known by their swagger-sounding nicknames. Back to Phil.
4: There was Captain America, of course, that was Lamar. The Commodore, Happy, because he had this boat rental business. (laughs) And Ron Elliott. His nickname was the, the Astronaut, because at one time he'd actually been part of the U.S. Government Astronaut Program. He's a very vivid character. I hadn't met him yet either, I was like happy I didn't meet him until later. He was, had grown up in northern Florida like Lamar, and a daredevil like Lamar, he'd been flying crop dusting jobs while he was still in high school. And about the time he graduated from high school, went into the service and Ended up flying special operations missions in Vietnam and Laos. And besides that, he was flying in the Mideast for intelligence, off-the-book stuff. But he was a pilot for uh, Eastern, just like Lamar. And that's actually how they met.
3: Elliot told Stanford about the meeting, which he remembers occurring in 1969.
4: He had a layover in Boston for about four hours. And I was in the pilot's lounge, and who should come in but Lamar? Lamar. Lamar wasn't flying that day, so he'd come up just to see Ron, and they started talking, and and at a certain point, Lamar said, how'd you like to do some hanky-panky flying? And uh, Ron says he played dumb at first, didn't know what he was talking about, and Lamar smiled at him and put his government records, a folder with his government records, on the the table in front of them. And Ron looked at it, and so he knew that Lamar was already familiar with all the -the off-the-books flying he was already doing, He agreed to hook up with Lamar and and for the next several days, he said they were down in the Bahamas and Lamar showed him where the safe houses were, where he could get gas and and that sort of thing. And they turned out to be best friends. He was Lamar's best buddy.
3: How did Lamar get Elliot's records?
4: He would have had some sort of connection. It's pretty clear.
3: Did um, Elliot's name come up, if I'm not mistaken, in the Black Tuna trial, too?
4: Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was actually among the inditees in the, in the Black Tuna trial, but eventually dropped. And I, I don't know whether it was because he had the government connections or because he wasn't really part of the Black Tuna organization. He wasn't. He was brought in at the very end by Bobby Platshorn, who'd filled a duty to rescue a couple of pilots who'd gone down in Central America, and so he g- got Ron Elliott and another guy, who turned out to be a DEA <laughs> informant, to fly down and get the the two downed pilots. And when they landed, they they were arrested. And Ron Elliott was charged, and initially on the Black indictment. But then the charges were dropped. Yeah. And it, it, as I say, it's not clear... Whether it was because he had the, the government connections, which is quite possible, or because he wasn't really part of the Black Tuna Gang.
3: So, Elliot, the charges are drops, and Platshorn gets 60 years under the kingpin.
4: Yeah, yeah.
3: Captain America, the Commodore, and the astronaut, along with another smuggler named Jack DeVoe, would very much rule the Miami skies of 1970s drug smuggling. Here's Happy.
5: Jack was captain jack from dick tracy he came in to join the club and uh very impressionable guy he came and talked to me about joining the club i told him it was 156 dollars up front for his first year dues and i would waive the initiation fee and of 400, and he went and he got a check for $156 signed by his mother. He was a great pilot, good IFR pilot. What is an IFR pilot? Instrument flight rules, where you go into the clouds and you can't see anything, and you have to drive the airplane on instruments only. Wow. So, what happened was Jack joined my club. And then he borrowed my Lake Amphibian and wrecked it. Did so much damage to it that I don't know how he got it home. And then the government came and said, you know that he's using your airplanes. Because he was
3: using the planes from the Adventurers Club to run trips. Where?
5: Well, I think he, he originally was... I'm not sure, probably flying out of Jamaica, but then he went to Columbia. Then the
3: DEA comes to you, right, and starts asking questions about Jack's travel.
5: Yeah. Yeah, the task force. He got on the task force's radar.
3: And that's when, Happy says, the task force leaned on him to keep tabs on DeVoe. But when Happy realized they were taping his office at the Adventurers Club, Mr. Miles returned the favor.
5: I recorded the guys at Johnson Aviation, which was the DEA, in their office next to my office. They were trying to get evidence on me.
3: So while they're recording you, you're recording them?
5: Yeah. Yeah except I did a better job than they did. And I never talked in my office. And instead, I taped everything that went on in their office. And what were they up to? Uh, Anything but the right thing. I mean, I had tapes of them uh, marketing products over the telephone and stuff.
3: Yeah. And by marketing products, Mr. Miles means making drug deals. So again, they're, they're actually committing the crimes they're trying to enforce, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Happy kept those tapes as insurance, which could explain the unique immunity deal he wound up getting. We'll dive more deeply into Jack DeVoe in future episodes and how he eventually ended up testifying against Manuel Noriega, the former CIA spy turned drug-running dictator.
5: Yep. Testified before Congress with a hood on his face. Wow. With a black hood over his head.
3: We'll circle back to all of that a bit later, but back to our story. Armed with an innate sense of both engineering and ingenuity, Mr. Happy Miles would take credit for a hack that was an absolute game-changer for this high-flying drug-smuggling set.
5: You know, everybody credits uh, later with stopping the islands and figuring out how to get cocaine from Colombia to the U.S. But it was me far ahead of them. Carlos Leder
3: was a German-Colombian drug trafficker and one of the founding members of the Medellin Cartel. He's considered to be one of the most important Colombian drug kingpins to have ever been successfully prosecuted in the United States.
5: I'm the guy that built the airplanes with 4,000-mile range. It wasn't for me building cocaine clippers. It's an airplane that'll fly forever. Reliable, twin-engine, Piper Comanche usually, although I built other ones, Skymasters with 200 gallons of fuel on them. Well, over that, 250 gallons of fuel on them.
3: Inspired by a book about a legendary long-distance pilot who'd broken records by retrofitting planes with additional fuel capacity, Happy employed the innovation to smuggling by artfully disguising the additional tanks to avoid detection.
5: They carried so much fuel, but nobody knew it. I mean, I just had a few more filler caps on the airplane than the average Comanche. But instead of carrying 90 gallons, I carried 300 plus.
3: And more fuel means less stops on the way back from Columbia or Jamaica for planes filled with drugs, which meant less risk of customs discovering those drugs and less money spent on bribing those customs agents. Fewer stops lowered risk and increased profits. So Happy's huge yet hidden tanks were a huge hit with the Coconut Grove smuggling set in a time when smuggling was a bit simpler and safer.
5: We're just a bunch of good old boys, Jack DeVoe and Lamar and Ron Elliott, myself. None of us were bang bang shoot them up. The only one I had ever seen with a gun was Ron Elliott when he pulled it on me, threatened to blow my brains out, and said I owed him money, but I didn't, but I paid him anyway. And I, I never made Enemies had vendettas against anybody because life was too short, and you never know when you might need them.
3: But that happened a bit later. Back to more innocent times.
5: It was pre-cocaine cowboy era, and Griselda Blanca.
3: Griselda Blanco was the notorious Colombian cocaine trafficker known as La Madrina, the godmother of cocaine and the Black Widow, because she murdered all three of her husbands.
5: There wasn't a lot of bang, bang, shoot em up, if any. The head of the DEA, Gene Frankar, used to call me the last of the oldie goldies. And DEA was underfunded. They had no money, so they were pretty hamstrung of what they could do. And surveillance wasn't what it is now.
3: So in in a way, it was a simpler, more safe time to get involved in that business.
5: Yeah. It, I mean, the chances of you getting caught if you knew what you were doing were pretty slim.
3: And I'm sure that the rewards were pretty high.
5: Well, yeah. I mean, you're getting basically 10% value of the load. Whoever your Colombian connection is, you're splitting $6,000 a kilo, basically. So I was getting 3500 a kilo in the end. That's not what I got in the beginning, but that's what I got after I'd worked for him a while.
3: How much at your peak would you say you were bringing in a month?
5: I was making at least 350000 a month. I'd go one time. So you were making
3: $350,000 a trip? A trip, yeah. That's over $4 million a year in the 1970s. And that's what basically put the Coconut Grove guys on the radar of law enforcement. Money.
4: Apparently, after Lamar made the hookup with the cartel people and got into cocaine, which was really big money, it was Ron Elliott who walked duffel bags of money through customs in Panama to launder it in the banks down there. And he was the one who was chosen to do that because he... He wore a suit better than any, any of the others. He could look like a, a real businessman. That was his job. Besides regular smuggling, flying duties, taking the money into Panama to be laundered.
3: According to Happy, fuel takes weren't the only influence he wielded over Chester. He claims to have given the former dope smuggler his cocaine connection.
5: And when I fixed him up with that load of cocaine, he made more money off of me, that load, than the entire time he had been running marijuana. That's another story
3: and a significant turning point in ours. Back to Happy and his impact on the Coconut Grove smuggling set.
5: Believe it or not, I was the setter. None of them had airplanes as sophisticated as my cocaine clippers were my Comanches. I mean, they followed me all the time. I had the Adventures Club and then the Flying Club, and then Jack started a flying operation out at Opalaca after me.
3: Opalaca is a city of Miami-Dade with an airport the Coconut Grove smugglers favored.
5: I was living at the Miami Lakes Country Club, and I moved to Ocean Reef. And then Lamar moved to Ocean Reef. Then Jack moved to Ocean Reef.
3: Yes, Happy's referring to the exclusive Ocean Reef Club in North Key Largo.
5: I had two hangers at Ocean Reef. Lamar had one hanger at Ocean Reef. I guess after I left, Jack took over one of my hangars. I don't know.
3: He's also implying the group smuggled drugs there via private hangars.
5: you got to remember, I started in, what, 74 or 5? The first load I ever made, I carried 5 kilos from Bolivia of cocaine. So off and on, one form or another... I had functioned in the industry for over five years. That's a long time to get away with doing what we were doing.
3: But as the 70s shifted into the 80s, the good old boys' dynamic was shifting too. Like Icarus, all these guys—the Commodore, Captain America, the astronaut, and Captain Jack— would eventually fly a bit too close to the sun— and one would actually crash and burn. But only after all had had some very real run-ins with the law.
4: They all got burned. Except Happy. Except Happy, yeah. When I was talking to, to Happy, it was pretty clear that he was very clever. He was always a jump ahead of the law. He was as much involved as any of the, uh, the others, maybe even more so.
3: <laughs> and that level of involvement would ultimately let Happy play both sides. What's the biggest misconception people have about the war on drugs?
5: Oh, that the government wants to do something about it. They don't. Everybody that works in the industry wants to keep it going and make it bigger and bigger. The more money they pump at it, the nicer toys that the guys have to play with, and the cars that they seize, they get to drive.
3: So you think there was never any real intention to win the war on drugs once they realized how lucrative it could be to fight it?
5: Well, it was all for
3: show. On the next murder in Miami, the long-standing history of prohibition pushing illicit profits.
5: When later moved into the uh, Bahamas, he paid a lot of money to be able to operate out of normal steel.
3: While the war on drugs makes for some very bizarre bed partners.
2: He told me that the CIA had been attempting to overthrow the government in the Bahamas.
3: And how the Coconut Grove smuggling set wound up in such hot water.
5: The color drained from their faces. There was a photograph of Lamar on there and it said master criminal or secret agent.
3: Murder, Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Bright-Pacheco, Taylor Shacoin and Phil Stanford. Written by Phil Stanford and Lauren Bright-Pacheco. Audio editing and sound design by Nicholas Harder, Evan Tyre, and Taylor Shacoin Featuring music by Evan Tyre, Phil Mayer, John Murchison, and Taylor Shacoin For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that matter to you.